Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. Today our guest is Paul Geringer. He is a Maryland Extension agent, and he's going to talk to us today about some legal issues that Maryland farmers are facing, how Maryland farmers deal with certain environmental regulations, dealing with Chesapeake Bay Area, and he's also going to talk to us about what farmers can do to pass on their farms to the next to the next generation. Um, a little side note, this is episode 8, and we are averaging about 55 to 60 listens per episode, which is really cool. So thank you for listening, whether you're in your car, working out, whatever you're doing. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. And continue to share the podcast, listen to it, um, tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes. It helps us out a ton. But seriously, just keep listening. Really glad we're getting those farmer stories out there and more and more people are listening. So thank you and hope you enjoy episode eight with Paul Geringer. Thanks. All right, well, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast, Paul Geringer. You are a Maryland Extension agent, so kind of walk us through what your job is as a Maryland Extension agent. Okay, yeah, so thanks for having me on, Trevor. Um, My job is I'm a state specialist in basically law, and I'm not based in a county office. I'm based on campus in the Department of Ag and Resource Economics here at the University of Maryland. And my job is more or less to go out and work with producers to have them better understand legal issues that sort of impact their um, farms, whether it be anything from transitioning the farm to the next generation, starting the farm for the first time, to dealing with county zoning and planning, to environmental regs. Um, We're lucky here in the state. um, We have... Um, state funding for a group called the Ag Law Education Initiative, which 
I'm also a part of, and we sort of have a whole team that work together to develop these um, resources to help farmers through extension. Okay, cool. Um, so what are some what are some of the main ag industries in Maryland that you kind of work with? Um, the biggest issue or the biggest um, industry is the poultry industry, probably with the equine industry up there neck and neck together. I can't remember who's first and who's second. Um, but we have a lot of contract growers with poultry, um, corn and soybean growers, a few dairies, and then a large number of specialty crop growers around the state. Because if you think about it, we have D.C., Baltimore, Philly, you name the metro area on the East Coast that's within, you know, a couple hours drive of here. And producers are selling to those consumers in those markets um, specialty crops. Gotcha. Um, now, how long have you been working there in Maryland? Uh, six and a half years. Okay. Have I noticed um, kind of across the country, there's been this whole like kind of um, farm to table movement. Have you kind of seen, at least in Maryland with all those local farmers, they've been trying to get their produce more and more to the big suburban areas like Baltimore, um, DC. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yes, I have noticed it. We've done a lot of work with, um, growers that are starting community supported ag um, CSA memberships with their farms um, agritourism's big um, with people trying to bring you know city people out maybe an hour from DC or Baltimore to experience the farm so yeah we've had a lot of growers that have taken a specific interest in that and a lot of non-traditional people coming into ag to take advantage of that as well Gotcha. That's really cool. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of producers that we've um, interviewed have been, they've said that they've been trying to use social media and agrotourism as much as they can. So that's really cool to hear. Um, now, you touched base that you work on a lot of legal issues with farmers. Talk us through that. And what are some of the bigger legal issues that you've had to deal with? Um, it depends on the day of the week as to what the biggest legal issue is and also what's in the news, it seems like at times. But um Mainly right now, the biggest ones that I work with are um, estate planning, which is always something people don't want to do, but then they have to do it at some point. So um, that has always been kind of one of the driving issues that I deal with on a regular basis. Um, if you've seen in the news, the North Carolina hog farm litigation, um, with us having a large number of poultry farms in the state, those growers are concerned about um, those type of lawsuits coming to Maryland. So we have to work with those growers to help them understand how right-to-farm law work laws work. But at the same time, deal a lot with environmental laws. Um, the Chesapeake Bay is more or less in the middle of the state. And, you know, it's one of these bodies of water that we do want to protect as a nation. So we deal with a large number of environmental regulations and laws that sort of help keep the Chesapeake Bay clean, whether you're a homeowner down to farmers and how they put nutrients on a field and that type of stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm sure the Chesapeake Bay is a huge hub and just a huge environmental issue. Uh, what what have you noticed in the past couple of years that has kind of been going towards regulations in the ag industry to kind of protect that body of water? I would say it's m m the regulations I've seen and sort of the move I've seen is towards um, more dealing with nutrient management, 
um, trying to make sure that the right amount of nutrients are going on when needed to kind of protect runoff and keep it from going into the bay or bodies of water that will eventually hit the bay. Um, that's where we've seen a lot of the regulations coming down. Um, I think this year before the General Assembly, um, the Maryland General Assembly, there's at least one bill to sort of more enforce how nutrient management is taking place in the state. And then at the same time, it's a lot, I mean, poultry farms create a lot of waste, is then trying to figure out where does all that waste go and sort of some of the regulations related to how do we transport, you know, chicken manure around the state to make sure it's going to the right locations and it's not going to a farm or a location that's oversaturated with certain nutrients. And I would say at looking at the country as a whole, one of the areas of the country that's moving slightly more towards the way Maryland is being regulated is if you look at Lake Erie, some of the regulations that are being moved towards Lake Erie to protect Lake Erie. Um, are starting to reflect some of the stuff that's been seen in the Chesapeake Bay. Gotcha. Yeah, down here in Florida, we've had a lot of that too. I mean, we're surrounded three quarters of the state by water. We've got Lake Okeechobee and the Everglades. And there's been a lot of talk about runoff going into the Okeechobee and the Bay, or not the Bay, but the Gulf. And so we we know how that feels to have to deal with all that stuff, just like in um, in the Chesapeake Bay area. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys have a lot to deal with down there too, from what I read in the news. Yeah, and I've talked to a few farmers, and they've said that a lot of people don't realize that they have got to check their water quality and their runoff and make sure it's, I think uh, one of the producers we talked to said it's got to be a certain percentage, like billion per particle or something like that, and that the quality of the water that they have to return back into the aquifer or back wherever has got to be a higher purity than bottled water, and I mean, that's just crazy, but yeah, a lot of the time you just, yeah, but Anytime anybody that's not involved in agriculture, they're like, oh, the algae blooms are only because of agriculture and it's not because of um, runoff from urban areas where you've got people just putting fertilizer in their lawns and not worrying about it. So that's very interesting. Um, okay. So what you, you talked about that you kind of talk, you work with farmers to kind of help them better figure out how to talk to their attorneys with issues. What are some what's some advice that you give to it to farmers on how to effectively communicate with attorneys with any legal issues they might have? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the first thing I always tell them to do is don't just sign up with the first attorney that you talk to. Talk to a talk to a couple. Um, it's like any other sort of, if you're going to hire an accountant or any a doctor, you're not just going to go in and hire the first one you talk to. In some cases, you might. But it's really getting to talk to them because they're going to be dealing with you potentially on, you know, either a daily basis, a weekly basis, depending on what the issue is. If you're going to court, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have constant communication with them. So you want to make sure you can work with them. I think that's the biggest thing that people don't think about is they may hear this person's good, you know, and then just decide because their neighbors um gave them a reference they hire them but they may not be a good fit personally personality wise for them so the biggest thing i always tell people is to communicate then make sure they understand how they're going to have to pay the attorney um almost every attorney i talk to and 
farmer, anyone who's ever had to hire an attorney, almost all the issues boil down to and the disputes and the relationship arise from, I didn't understand how I was going to pay this person or from the attorney's standpoint, well, I didn't get paid on time and this person didn't want to pay me. So it's always making sure they're aware of how they're going to pay, what's going to be billed, what's not going to be billed, so they can maximize sort of how much money they're going to spend and make sure that they don't overspend money on their legal issue. And then the other big thing that kind of goes back to making sure you can work with the person is how do they like to communicate and how do you like to communicate? You know, it's making sure that in the end, if the attorney doesn't want to pick up the phone and doesn't want to talk to you, but will shoot you an email because that's what they have the time and the day to do. Are you comfortable getting an email? Do you know how to send an email? <laughs> I mean, that sometimes it's an issue depending on age or are they going to text you or do you want to text them? So it's just making sure that, and then sort of talking to them at the same time to make sure, do they have the expertise to even be handling the issue that I'm presenting them with? Um, you know, if they're the local attorney, in a small town, they may not have the environmental law background to be able to handle an environmental law problem, and you may have to go to a bigger city to try to find that attorney from a bigger firm and spend a little bit more money, but it may be beneficial to you in the long run to do that and make sure that you're getting someone who's an expert to sort of handle the problem, and you're not just paying someone for on-the-job training that may not be what you want in the end. Right. Now, people outside the industry might be curious as to, one, why, who, why exactly would a farmer be sued? And also, on the other point, why, what are some other instances to when a farmer would need legal advice or legal counsel? So walk us through that. Okay, so I'll, I'll take the second one first, and I can talk about the, last, the first one last. Um, so, I mean, if you think about it, if you're, I mean— I don't know how it is in Florida, and and I, I'm originally from Oklahoma, and I know how it is in Oklahoma. Um, in Oklahoma, if you want to build a barn and put it up for your farm, you just go out and build a barn. Um, Maryland, if you want to put a barn up on your farm, you need to make sure you're going through zoning and planning. You get it, the plans approved. You do everything like you're building a home in a city in other states. So part of it may be you just need the attorney to walk you through zoning and planning to make sure you understand what you need to do exactly to get your building built. Other issues may be you got to get a will written, you know, you need help complying with environmental laws in some case, and there may not be just a consultant, a farm management person you can deal with that can help you with those. So it's just any sort of host of issues that would normally pop up in a business you may actually need an attorney for at some point. Um, with Maryland being a little bit more regulated than other states, um, the issues where you might need an attorney would pop up more and more here than they may in other states. Um, as it comes to getting sued, Part of the issue is if we look at, say, what's going on with hog farms in North Carolina and um, Iowa and a few other states where there's just nuisance lawsuits going on, um, where neighbors are claiming that um, the animal operations themselves are nuisances. Um, we could have cases, you know, here where some a neighbor's claiming the farmer is a nuisance. Um, cases where potentially the state or neighbor are claiming that the farm um, 
violated environmental laws, um, didn't follow zoning and planning, um, you know, or just the normal, you know, I have an agritourism operation and my kid got bit by, you know, the dairy cow or the pig that they were able to pet while they were out on the farm and now I'm going to sue you. So it could just be any sort of common lawsuit, but at the same time it could be areas where they're potentially um, claims that they're violating state or federal environmental laws where they could be sued. Gotcha. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's a lot of stuff you could get sued over. Um, I, you know, I can imagine now, um, especially given all the attention in social media and just how, I mean, how political people get, I can't imagine having um, an agrotourism operation and having people pet livestock and because I, I'm honestly not shocked they don't see that in the news more often. Oh, a, a cow bit my daughter's finger and it swelled up, so I'm going to sue you. Like, well, you should know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should know that. Or think about what, what are some of the common bacteria and viruses you could get from not washing your hands if the kid just accidentally puts their hand on something and puts it in their mouth. They could get E. coli or something. Yeah, just exactly. Just from walking through the farm and it's like, what? No. <laughs> We told you to wash your hands before and after, but you didn't listen. So it's your fault, not ours. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you talked about a second ago um, legal advice for giving wills to farmers. And you've mentioned that one of the things you do is kind of talking to farmers on how to pass their farm on to the next generation. Kind of walk us through that. What what exactly do you tell farmers how to pass their farm on? And what are some what's some stuff you've done concerning that? Okay. So the biggest thing, um, I think myself and other people that have do this type of stuff are is always make sure that the family is on the same page that if the kids nobody wants the farm then why are you going to pass the farm on to you know one kid to run if they don't want it so make sure that sort of everybody's on the same page and we all know what everybody's life goals are um, when this initial meeting happens and then try to figure out a way at that point that works for you to how you're going to slowly start moving management um, what other ever other decisions need to be made towards that next generation and slowly start doing it over the course of your life to where maybe the farm will be successful down the road once you're no longer a part of it because part of the problem is is how many farmers want to retire there's really nobody that wants to retire sometimes from this profession. They all expect they're going to continue to do it until the day they die. That may not always be the best avenue that we can have, especially if we want managers to take over and be able to manage a farm and people with that management experience. So it may be trying to figure out how do I continue to stay active in the farm, but I give up um, some of the management control um, Oddly, I just got to go to a conference um, out of the country and in Australia, and one of the tours we were able to do on it, and we were able to select what tours we did. I did a farm succession tour, and it was very interesting listening to the three farmers or the three farm families we talked about where, you know, both, I think in all three cases, the dads decided at 65, I'm retiring and this is your problem. And all of them held true to that. They retired. Sons took over. Um, for the most part, it seemed like the operations were growing. And the dads were just hired hands at that point who came in and, you know, did what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. 
and there were other people that the sons relied on but you know dad may show up and help work so many hours a day and then take off for the rest of the day so i think what passing it on to the next generation and sort of taking it from just the idea of okay this thing's going to be passed on at my death to more how do we do it over the course of the of the of the the life of the current farm manager to make sure that the next farm manager has the skills in place to be able to handle the operation and it may be better to have you know dad there to answer questions during that period of time then all of a sudden thrusted upon the next generation and no one there to help answer the questions as to why certain decisions were made right um now could you give us like a a rough rough percentage as to um how many farms in maryland are actually they are family owned they've been family owned and they will continue to be family owned just like a rough estimate if you could uh if i remember correctly from the last census it's around 80 percent oh wow that's really cool yeah a lot of people that's one thing i'm trying to do with with this podcast is just kind of inform consumers that most farms are family-owned and operated they always think oh it's big agro it's taking over all the food but no like that's really cool that in maryland it's 80 percent family owned and operated that's really cool yeah and i think that's what the census said yeah i mean and you think about even though we have contract with Purdue, Tyson, I'm trying to think who the other um, contract growers are in the state for poultry. Almost all of them are, you know, family-owned farms that contract with those companies to grow chickens. So that would be about the only thing where maybe corporate would get involved. Right. That's pretty cool. Um, Well, Paul, this has been really cool to talk about, man, a whole bunch of stuff. The ag industry in Maryland, um, legal advice for farmers, passing on farms to the next generation, um, if people want to reach out for you, if farmers in Maryland want to reach out with you, with you and learn more about um, all the advice you have, where how could they get in contact with you, or where can they go to learn more about Maryland Extension? Uh, they can go for Maryland Extension. They can go to extension.umd.edu, and that will bring them to University of Maryland Extension's homepage. Um, to find me and stuff I do, I mean I'm on social media. I sh- uh, um, my Twitter is at AglawPaul. Um, for our, our law stuff, we're funded a little different, so our stuff's not actually under the University of Maryland Extension website. We have a page there that will eventually get you to us, but um, we are at umaglaw.org, and that will get you to me and everyone else who works on the issues in the state. Gotcha. All right. Well, Paul, thanks for being on the podcast, man. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Hey, everyone. We're trying to make things easier for you to listen to the podcast. We are now a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. That means you can now find us on an additional platform. We're now available on the Waypoint app on your Apple TV, Roku, or Amazon Fire Stick, smart TVs like Samsung, and even game systems. While you're on there, check out over 2,500 of the best hunting and fishing shows and short films, download the app, and watch and listen anywhere.